good morning, everybody. This is awesome. It is great to be here with you. Man. I am excited. I am excited to see all of you. I can't promise I will remember all of your names, but I'm working on it. I've already had a few blunders this morning where I'm like, I know you, but I, oh, I can't. But anyway, I'm, we're, we're trying our best to get to know you better. We're looking forward to that. And we're just excited. We're excited to be here and, and excited to get to serve God together at First Free Church. This is so amazing to be at this point. We've been working on this now for, for months. You guys from your end and us from our end. And here we are. And praise God. It is just, it is awesome. I'm, uh, I'm humbled to be here. I really am. I'm not only excited, but I'm humbled. I feel incredibly blessed and incredibly encouraged. You all have been such an encouragement and support and so welcoming, and so thank you for that. It's been a wonderful experience, and we're just just starting to kind of dip our toes into the water of First Free and learn more and figure out what does this all look like. And there's a lot to learn. I mean, the, the family relationships in themselves are a lot to learn here, just to figure out who's married to who, and they're their sister, and all that. And somebody actually, somebody made me a family tree chart and left it for me at the office just so I could start to memorize those connections. So shout out to Jeff for that. Thank you. That was awesome. Uh, maybe I could use some more of those. I don't know. But I'm, I'm just, I'm happy to be here. I'm eager to serve God together. And I want to take a few moments right here at the beginning of the message just to talk to you as your new senior pastor and to kind of share my first sort of pastoral message with you today. Being a pastor is not just about leading and casting vision. And it's not just about shepherding and care. And it's not just about teaching and preaching, though it is all of those things. When you peel all of those layers back, being a pastor is ultimately about relationships. It's about relationships. It's about my relationship with God. It's about my relationship with you. It's about pointing you toward a closer relationship with God. That's what being a pastor is all about. And all of those other things flow from that relationship. This is all about relationships. The church is all about relationships. Your relationship with each other, your relationship with God. That's what this is. And knowing that this is about relationships and knowing that I am now entering into an important relational role with you, it's important to understand that relationships can be messy, right? Relationships need guardrails. They need boundaries, Or else some of the biggest hurt that we can experience comes from relationships. In fact, the the worst hurt in relationships happens when we bring into a relationship certain expectations and those expectations are not met by the actions of someone else in that relationship. We walk in with one expectation and they have something else. Mismatched expectations. When I was in college, I met a girl, asked her out on a date, and we went to a concert together and had a, had a good time after we talked for a while, and I decided uh, after talking with her for a while that evening that this just wasn't something that I wanted to pursue anymore. There was no connection there. There was just nothing that I wanted to, to go any further with, and so I just decided the best thing to do would be to not ask her out again. That'll take care of it, right? Well, she had other ideas. And so she would try to contact me every day. She'd message me and, and do different things to try to, to get my attention. She, she found out where I lived, and, and she would try to use my roommates to get a hold of me. One day, my roommate came in as I was studying with a plate full of brownies, and he handed them to me, and I go, thanks? 
you know, where did this come from? And, and he said, well, it's from your stalker. <laughs> and she's waiting outside. So I mustered up all the courage that I could, and I closed the blinds and turned off the lights and acted like I wasn't there. <laughs> the problem was not solved. She continued to pursue me in what could really only be classified now as a hunt. And, and the next week, she decided that enough was enough and she was going to really get my attention. And so she knew which window was mine and she started picking up. So it's a second story window. She started picking up some little pebbles and just tossed them at the window. Going to get my attention that way. And eventually she had exhausted all of the little rocks, I guess. And she picked up a big one. And she launched that thing at the window and the grass, glass came crashing down around me as I was studying and I realized we have a problem here. Now, why did that happen? Did it happen because she picked up a rock and threw it at the window? Well, yes, but why did that happen? Did it happen because she wanted a relationship and I didn't? Yes, but why did that happen? Because we had mismatched expectations. She had, was operating off of one set of expectations and I was operating off a completely different set of expectations. She thought that that one date meant we were a thing now, that we were going out together. And I thought that by not contacting her again, I was letting her down easy. She thought that I was playing hard to get. I thought that I was playing impossible to find. <laughs> and we had mismatched expectations. It's dangerous in relationships to have mismatched expectations. It's one of the biggest relationship killers in our marriages, in our families, with our friends, at church, and with God. We can have mismatched expectations. Now, before I go any further, my wife reviewed my message last night, and she said, you have to tell them that wasn't me. <laughs> so now you know. That was not Jenny. This morning I'm going to talk about expectations, and it works out perfectly because this morning our passage in Mark 8 is going to walk through mismatched expectations that people had around Jesus. But right here at the beginning of my pastoral ministry in this church, I want to talk about some expectations that you can have of me. There are probably a lot that we could talk about, but I'm just going to mention three. The first one is you can expect me to be a flawed human. You can expect me to make some mistakes. You can expect my family to make some mistakes. It was mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm just a regular guy. I am. God has given me a unique role in this church. That is true. But I am still just a regular person on this journey of life and spiritual growth with everybody else. And I am not a super Christian. Pastors are not super Christians. We make mistakes just like everybody else. I struggle with sin just like everybody else. Yes, we are pursuing God. And yes... I think it's amazing that part of my job is to actually study God's word and then communicate it to people. That's just wonderful for me. But we're not super Christians. I'm not a super Christian. So you can expect me to be a flawed human. You can expect me to make some mistakes. And you can help me out with that by praying for me and my family, by praying that God would protect us, by praying that he would protect us from temptation, by praying that he would protect us from frustration that happens in ministry, by praying that he would protect us from stagnation that can happen. If, you, if you're in ministry for a long time and you just sort of start to coast and get in maintenance mode, that's not what I want. I want to always be on fire for God. So pray for us. You can also help us by giving the benefit of the doubt. 
there will always be mismatched expectations in relationships, and that includes the relationship with, with a pastor, especially a senior pastor. And there may, may be times where I do something or say something that's either wrong or maybe just misunderstood. Please give the benefit of the doubt. Please come talk to me if you ever want clarification on anything. I know the value that there can be in having that accessibility and approachability of the pastor to just be able to talk and share with them. I would love to connect with you if there's ever anything you have questions about. Give the benefit of the doubt and come see me. Also, we're going to work together as a team. You can expect me, number two, to be a team player. You can expect me to be a team player. God has blessed this church with some incredible people. There is wisdom and heart and maturity here, and I need that. We are going to work together as a team. I am not a celebrity pastor. You heard it mentioned earlier. That's not the goal here. I'm not here to try to lead a one-man personal crusade and agenda. No, I am here to be a part of teams, to help lead teams who collaboratively and collectively are going to move us forward to where God wants us to go. You can expect me to be a team player. You can also expect that I want to have a relationship with every one of you. But that relationship is going to have to look different for different people. Church experts say that one pastor can have deep relationships and lead and shepherd about 150 people. One pastor can only really lead and shepherd in any kind of level of depth about 150 people. I'm in trouble. (laughs) I need the team. And that means that our relationships are going to look different. Now, Jesus modeled this perfectly for us because he had three people, Peter, James, and John, who were in his inner circle, and he spent more time with them than he did with any of the other disciples. He he let them in on things that other people didn't know. He shared bits of information with them that the rest of the disciples didn't know. That's in there. He spent a little less time with the 12, the rest of the 12 disciples. He spent a little less time with the 72 disciples. He spent less time with the multitudes. This is a great model for us as pastors. Because if I want to be effective here in ministry, I am going to need to spend the bulk of my shepherding and development time with the elders and pastors and staff and ministry leaders. I want to have a relationship with everyone, but that relationship will have to look different for different people. That's just the reality of the situation in a a large church. And as I work with all of the leaders and elders and pastors, then we collectively are going to help lead and shepherd the church together and reach everyone that way. The model that Jesus established for us is a model for multiplication and equipping as opposed to ministry burnout. And if you take a pastor of a church of 150 or 300 and you plop him into a large church of several hundred people and he tries to do ministry the same way, he's going to find out real quick it doesn't work that way. Because you just cannot go that deep with hundreds and hundreds of people as you can with 150 or or a couple hundred people. So you can expect that I'm a flawed person You can expect that I want to be a team player here, and that's how we're going to operate. You can expect that I want to have a relationship with you. But of course, that is going to look different for different people. Now, will there be any changes with a new senior pastor? Isn't that what everybody wants to know? Will there be any changes that are going to happen? And of course there will. Of course there will be changes. You know, if we ever get to a point where we say that we don't need any change anymore, that is a place of tremendous arrogance and pride. To say that we have arrived. There's nothing else we need to change. Nothing else we can do to improve. We did it. We're here, church. This is it. We're never changing. No, that's, that's not what we're going to do. Yes, there are changes that are going to happen. We need to grow and improve and refine different areas. And I know some people say that they really don't like change. Some people just don't like change. And my response to that is, I have never actually met a person 
who truly doesn't like any change. I've never met him. Because every time I walk up to somebody who says they don't like change, I ask them, so is there anything that you think should be changed around here? (laughs) And invariably, they can come up with several items that they would like change. You see, the problem is not that we don't like change. The problem is that we don't like change that we don't understand or don't agree with. That's the problem. So change isn't the issue. The issue is do we understand it and do we agree with it? Or even if we don't fully agree with it, do we trust and align with the leaders as we're moving forward? That is the question. And the answer to that is communication. And so we collectively, as elders, pastors, staff, leaders, our job, our goal is to communicate effectively with you, to listen to you, to, to everyone in the church, and to communicate well, so that as we do, as we are led by God, as God is moving, and we believe God is moving, and when God moves, we experience that as change. And I know that can cause some anxiety, but if we communicate well with each other, if we give each other the benefit of the doubt, if we trust each other together, then as we experience that change, as God moves in different areas, and leads us to grow, and improve, and refine, and all those things, We can do that in a way where there's understanding and where there's hopefully a lot of agreement. And at least if not agreement, at least alignment. What I mean by that is this. You may hear of something that we're doing and you go, I don't agree with that, but I trust the elders. I trust the pastors. I trust that God is leading them and that they are seeking him. And maybe I don't have the whole story. Maybe I don't understand everything that's going on there. And if you want to understand more, my message to you is the door is always open. I want to have that relationship with you. I want to communicate with you. I want us to have understanding and alignment so that the changes we do experience will go through together. So this morning, that is my very first pastoral message to you. And it's also the introduction to the message today, which just worked out perfectly. We're in Mark chapter 8. You can turn in there in your Bibles right now if you want to. Uh, you can also open the YouVersion Bible app, and if you click on the menu and events, you'll see First Free Church there, and you can follow along there if you want to. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation this morning in the book of Mark, and there are really good reasons for that, particularly with this passage. Actually, there are some elements of this passage that are more accurate in the New Living Translation than almost every other translation in existence. There's only one other translation I know of that actually, um, in, that actually it communicates as clearly what the original intent of the text was, and we're not going to get into that today. That's for another time, but I really do uh, like what this translation is doing here. As we're talking about preaching and and going into this book of Mark here again together, you you may be wondering, what are we going to do as a church in the future with a sermon series? And that question was posed to me weeks ago. Are we going to start a new series now with a new senior pastor? Am I going to come in with my own kind of plan and what we're going to do? And and my thought on this was, and talked with John and Don about this, we all agreed, let's just keep going in Mark. This is a great book study. Um, I, I have a bit of a completion complex So I really don't want to stop halfway in a great book study. I want us to finish it. And so we're going to do that. We're going to keep going in the book of Mark. We're going to interlace some other series as we go, including in December. We're going to take a a short break from Mark. And for the month of December, John has come up with a great plan for preaching where we're going to preach around some Christmas songs that have really rich biblical foundations. And we're going we're gonna to learn more about the history and why those songs say what they say. It's really good. Because as we're singing, sometimes we don't even know, think about the words, you know, that we're singing. And yet we're singing praises to God or we're singing about God. We're worshiping God. We're singing about God to others. If we don't know what we're singing and why, then maybe we need to go back and look at that. So that's what we're going to do this December. And you're also going to see John and Don and others up here preaching as well. And not just when I'm on vacation. 
because I need to sit under other people's preaching sometimes too. This is going to be a team effort. Yes, I'm going to do the bulk of the preaching here. Absolutely, that's, that's what I'm here to do. But at the same time, I want to see God use the gifts and talents of other people as well and to give opportunities for them to continue to grow and use those to bless and encourage the whole body. And I've got to say something else about this too. Because sometimes senior pastors get a little bent out of shape when someone comes up to them and says, you know, you really ought to have so-and-so preach more. Really, really wish you'd let uh, John and Don take a little more of that. I'm, I'm kind of getting tired of you. <laughs> and here's what I want to tell you. God made us all different. God made us all unique. And some of you are probably going to prefer someone else's preaching more. Some of you are going to say, man, when John preaches, that is it for me. Or when Don preaches, that's the best. Or whoever is up here. And that's okay. God made us different. We are a team. We have different strengths. You're going to connect with people differently. And we want to use all of the strengths and gifts and abilities that God has given us in in different people. And I need that too. I need to sit under other people's preaching too. So sometimes you're going to see me out there with you and somebody else is going to be up here preaching and I'm going to be out there soaking it in just like you are. That's where we're going. We're going to be in the book of Mark and we're we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit with some other series too. So let's get into it this morning mismatched expectations when our expectation doesn't line up with reality we are in for some serious disappointment let me give you some examples one of the best examples I've seen of this is online you'll find some pictures where someone has put an expectation and then the reality that happened afterward and it's usually a big disappointment the best ones of these are actually with cakes Because someone will see an amazing cake that someone else made, probably on Pinterest, and it looks incredible, and they try to replicate that in their own kitchen, and, well, I'm going to let you be the judge on some of these. Expectation. That's a a cute-looking cake. Any kid that's into monkeys would enjoy that. Reality. That's just creepy. You show that to your one-year-old on their birthday, and they're going to cry. Here's a cute one, a little precious moments type of cake, you know, just cute little lamb sort of deal, unless it looks like this. Man. I have nicknamed this the possessed Muppet. Beautiful aerial cake from Disney. Any little girl's going to love this cake for her birthday, except if she goes and she sees. Is that Ursula? I think that's maybe Ursula. You know, uh, probably a lot of you have watched the movie Frozen, and for me, the movie Frozen, I almost turned it off about 30 minutes in because I was just like, this is boring, until this guy showed up and saved the day. Hilarious Olaf, great character, unless he looks like this. Yikes. That is creepy. Hey, when we hold to unrealistic expectations, we set ourselves up for disappointment, don't we? That's pretty disappointing. We do this in our marriages, we do this in our parenting, and we do this with God. So if you have Mark 8 open, we are going to walk through three historical accounts about Jesus. And these three different accounts all tie together. When Mark writes, or really it's probably Peter dictating to Mark, we don't know for sure, but that's what we think happened. When Mark is writing, he includes less stories than what other Gospels do, and he puts them in a very specific order. Sometimes it's different than the other Gospels, because Mark is not writing to give us an account of Jesus' life so much as he's writing to give us theology and mission behind what Jesus is doing. 
In other words, he wants us to understand the theology of Jesus, who Jesus is, and how important this is, and what should our response be to this. And often he does that through the disciples and other people like the Pharisees. What was their response to Jesus? So let me give you some setting for this passage that we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. We're going to see three historical accounts that all take place around this. This is the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a big lake, but they call it the Sea of Galilee. Because it's a lake, uh, you can see I'm on one side of the shore here. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So it's, it's not that far across. You can take a boat and, and get across there in an hour or two. It's not too bad. And at this Sea of Galilee, this is where this is all going to take place. I want to show you some stuff about, about this place here. First of all, this is the region of Galilee right there. That's the, whole, the region of Galilee. When the Bible talks about Galilee, that's what it's talking about. This is the Tetrarchy of Philip. And this over here is what's called the Decapolis. Now, the Decapolis means ten cities. Deca, ten, polis cities, ten cities. So when the Bible's talking about the Decapolis, it is talking about something over in this southeastern region. Jesus, when we start in chapter 8 this morning, is going to be near the Decapolis. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that in chapter 8. He tells us that in chapter 7. So in chapter 7, he's established that he's in the Decapolis, probably somewhere around the city of Hippos. Some scholars think that maybe he was actually a little bit north in the, in the uh, Tetrarchy of Philip area. Whatever it was, it was in the region, the general area of the Decapolis. It's this side, the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to get into a boat with his disciples at the end of being in this region where he feeds thousands of people. We'll look at that in a minute. And he's going to travel by boat all the way across to about over there where there's a place that Mark calls Dalmanutha. And Dalmanutha, let me just mark it here for you. Dalmanutha was probably the port region that they actually docked in. And there's a city nearby that Matthew, in his parallel account, references called um, Magdala. Or, or Mark calls it Magadan, but it means Magdala. And you know someone, you know of someone from Magdala, Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. And this city called Magdala was actually only recently discovered over in Israel, and so now they're excavating, and they've, they've found a lot of really neat stuff there. I got to walk through the, the ruins and see the archaeologists digging up things. They found coins that demonstrated just how old this place was. Really, really fascinating stuff. And it's here at Magdala that Jesus is going to encounter some Pharisees, and when he is done talking with them, he is going to travel, get back in a boat, and travel with the disciples back across the Sea of Galilee to somewhere over here, and he's going to end up in Bethsaida. And it's in Bethsaida that we will be next week as we look at some more uh, accounts of Jesus there. So this is sort of the background of what's going on at this time and where we're going to see these different accounts happen. With that context in mind, go to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 1 together and walk through this together. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. About this time... Another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. Now, here's where this is. This is Hippos on this hill right there. And somewhere in this region is where Jesus is with these people. Now, when Mark says a large crowd, later on he tells us that it was 4,000 men. In Matthew's account of this same incident, Matthew says there were not only the 4,000 men, there were also women and children besides that. So we are probably looking at a crowd of over 10,000 people gathered here to listen to Jesus. 
And what they thought they were coming for was maybe something of a seminar. What they got was a conference. They were there for three days, and they didn't bring enough food for that. They weren't planning on that. And so Jesus brings this problem to the disciples and says, we got to help these people. He says, if I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way. For some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Imagine the amount of food required to feed 10,000 people in the wilderness. To come up with that just suddenly. There's no Costco nearby. There's no Sam's Club. There's not even a Gordon Food Service. What are we going to do to get enough food to feed this many people? And the disciples are asking Jesus, this is absurd. You want us to feed these people? And here's what I want you to notice about this. It's their reaction. The way they react to the problem that Jesus presented them with is this. It's all on us. It's all on us. In fact, here's expectation number one for this morning. Expectation number one, I have to solve my problems on my own. That's what the disciples thought. This is all on us. Jesus has presented us with this problem. How do you expect us to solve this? We can't find food to feed this many people. It doesn't make any sense. That's ridiculous. And this is often an expectation that we have going through life as well when we face different problems. Maybe, maybe we have a problem with a spouse who's going through something emotionally. And we think, I have to fix this on my own. Or we have a problem with a, a sick loved one, an injured loved one. We think, I have to care for them all on my own. Especially when it's, when it's a long-term disease or something like that. It can, be, it can be discouraging and even depressing. And we start to feel isolated like it's all on us to take care of this. Maybe you're wrestling with some kind of an addiction. It could be to, to drugs. It could be to alcohol. It could be to pornography. It could be to an unhealthy relationship. It could be to work. And we wrestle with this and we think, I have to correct this all on my own. Maybe you see people who are hurting, who are oppressed, who are marginalized, and you think, I have to fix this problem all on my own. This is an unhealthy expectation that I have to solve this on my own. And I absolutely love Jesus' response to this question from the disciples. Here's what he says. How much bread do you have? This is amazing. Because Jesus' answer to this question from the disciples is not, do you have enough? It's how much do you have? Jesus doesn't say, do you have enough to solve this problem? He says, how much do you have? Why? Because he can take that and do something amazing with it. Jesus doesn't ask, do you have enough? He asks, how much do you have? And this leads us to an important principle. God never expects you to solve a problem on your own. But he always expects you to be a part of the solution. Isn't that comforting? God never expects you to solve a problem on your own. Think about it. But he always expects you to be part of the solution. In John chapter 15, Jesus talks about himself being the vine and us being the branches. And he says this, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God never expects us to solve a problem on our own. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But then he goes on to say this, When you produce much fruit... You are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. He always expects us to be part of the solution. This is a partnership between God and His people. 1 Corinthians 3 says that we are co-laborers, co-workers with God. The Greek word there is synergos. It's where we get our word synergy from. It means we're working together. God wants to work with us. He never expects us to solve the problem on our own. 
And if that's what you're facing right now, God does not expect you to solve any problem on your own. He wants to work with you in that, but he expects you to be part of the solution. Jesus doesn't ask, do you have enough? He asks, how much do you have? What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to put toward this solution? Because I can take that and make it incredible. That's what Jesus is offering here. Ephesians 3.20 is a a great verse you may want to write in your notes or in the margin of your Bible as we're looking at this passage because it ties in so well. Paul says this, Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. God can accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Now that's an amazing truth because we can bring all of our dreams and our hopes and our desires and our problems to God and God can legitimately say in response to us, I can do better. I can do better than anything you can think of. I can do better than anything you can dream of. He can do infinitely more than we could ask or even think. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the God that invites us to be involved with him. And Jesus does this with the disciples. Look at verse 7. Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? Verse 6, rather. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces, and he gave them to his disciples who distributed them to the crowd. Now that's really cool. Because this is Jesus we're talking about here. Jesus has the ability to snap his fingers and instantly drop a Cinnabon into the lap of every man, woman, and child in that crowd. He could just say, poof, cinnamon rolls everywhere, boom, you're welcome, and problem is solved. And yet he doesn't do that. What does he do? He chooses to work through the disciples. Instead of just, boom, there's all the bread for you, he says, take this and distribute it, and it'll multiply as you do it. And that's exactly what he does. And then in verse 7, a few small fish were found too. So Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 men in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples and crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. Amazing what Jesus did here. And you would think after this that people would start to figure out there's something special about this guy. But it took a while. This leads us to our second story. As they cross over the Galilee, this is what that looks like. So this is actually me on a boat crossing from the Decapolis to Magdala. This is the exact journey that Jesus and his disciples took. And it's, it's not a very long trip. It's a beautiful trip. And if you make this journey, you will have the privilege of seeing this amazing discovery made just 30 years ago. 30 years ago, some amateur archaeologists during a low water situation found this boat at the bottom of the Galilee, sticking out a little bit out of the water. And this was encapsulated in mud for 2,000 years the only boat of its kind. This is the type of boat, a fishing boat, that Jesus and his disciples would have used to cross over the Galilee. Really, really cool. And this is there in in that area of Magdala, or what Mark calls Dalmanutha. So here's story number two. Look at verse 11. 
When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to argue with him, testing him. They demanded, whoops, hold on. They demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. Now, here's one thing we know about Jesus' ministry at this point. He was already performing signs and miracles that showed his authority. We just saw that. He was already doing incredible things. So why are the Pharisees asking him to show them, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign to prove his authority? Here's why. Because they weren't following him. Because they weren't following Jesus, they demanded that Jesus operate on their schedule. They expected miracles on demand, not when they were needed. They expected Jesus to just do what he'd reportedly been doing elsewhere to prove that he had authority. And what does Jesus say in response to this? Well, expectation number two here. I can get God to work on my schedule. This is what the Pharisees thought. Now, of course, they didn't think he was God. But they tried to get Jesus to operate on their schedule, on their timetable. And we live in a microwave society, a microwave culture. Because food cooked in the oven just takes too long. We want fast food, right? And fast cars and everything delivered on our schedule. And, and God forbid that we should have to wait five seconds for a video to buffer when we click it online. We want everything fast. We want it now. We're impatient. We're impatient with other people and with other things and with our work. And we're impatient with God. We're very impatient people. And that's the way these Pharisees were, impatient Now, here's the thing. Sometimes, our impatience with God, I think, actually comes from how we read the Bible. Now, how could our impatience come from how we read the Bible? Here's the thing. We go back to Scripture, and we read stories in the Bible, and we see how God interacted with people in the Bible, and we think, why isn't God doing that with me? Look at him, how he worked in the life of Joseph, and he worked in the life of Moses, and he worked in the life of Abraham, he worked in all these people's lives, and why isn't God working that way in my life right now? And here's what we have to understand. We are reading condensed versions of these guys' stories. Sometimes we get a few verses that span decades. From the time that Joseph was sold into slavery to the time that he appeared before Pharaoh and started his rise to power was 13 years. 13 long years of serving, being imprisoned, wondering, waiting. God, what are you doing? 13 years. From the time that Abraham was told that he would have a son, promised a son, to the time God actually gave him one, was 25 years. 25 years, two and a half decades going, you promised God, when are you going to deliver? And he got antsy about that too. 25 years. From the time that Moses fled Egypt as a fugitive to the time that God brought him back to rescue his people, 40 years. 40 years of waiting. From the time that Malachi wrote the last book of the Old Testament to the time that John the Baptist came and fulfilled the prophecies that were written about him in Malachi, 400 years of silence. Here's the thing. We're reading these condensed stories and sometimes we ask this question, God, why aren't you working in my life like you did with them? And you've got to understand it. It wasn't that different with them. There was a lot of waiting. There was a lot of delay. There was a lot of teaching them what God wanted to teach them during the gap. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that because sometimes we are waiting and waiting and waiting and getting impatient with God. And the danger of expecting God to work on our schedule 
is that when he doesn't, we lose hope. The danger of expecting God to work on our schedule, on our timing, is that when he doesn't, we feel hopeless. What is God doing right now? We have to remember that God's timing is not our timing. God's timing is not our timing. And God may be trying to teach us something as we wait patiently for him to move. We may see results in 13 years. We may see results in 25 years. We may see results in 40 years. Or we may not see the fruit in our lifetime. We have to trust that God's timing is not our timing. And he is working. Now the Pharisees, of course, didn't know this, didn't believe this, didn't even believe Jesus was God. And so they were impatient. And they demanded this sign. And here's what Jesus says in response when he heard this. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. And now we come to story number three. Look at verse 13. So he got back into the boat and left them. He crossed to the other side of the lake. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. This is important. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. At this they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. It's all about the bread. It's all about the food. It's all about putting stuff in their stomachs. Verse 17. Jesus knew what they were saying. So he said, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? And they said 12. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet? He asked them. Now, what's going on here? Not long ago, Jesus, on two different occasions, fed thousands and thousands of people with tiny, tiny resources. The ratio of those five loaves and seven loaves to the amount that was produced left over is incredible. And here are the disciples sitting in their boat arguing because they only have one loaf of bread between the handful of people that are there. And if they remembered back to Old Testament history class, they should have remembered a guy named Elisha, a prophet, who in 2 Kings has 20 loaves of bread and 100 mouths to feed, and his servant goes, it's not going to be enough. And Elisha says, God has told me that if we distribute this bread, he will multiply and, and there will even be some left over. And that's what they do. Elisha the prophet and his servant, they distribute this bread Everyone has more than enough to eat. It multiplies as they're handing it out. And there's even some left over. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. In a big way. Elisha did this from 20 loaves to 100 people. Jesus did this from 5 loaves to 15,000 people. From 7 loaves to 10,000 plus people. Jesus is the answer to their problem. And they are squabbling over one loaf of bread in the boat. And as they argue about this back and forth, Jesus becomes understandably exasperated with them. Here's the point. It's not about the bread. It wasn't even about the bread with the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus is demonstrating that he is who he says he was. 
He's demonstrating that he has authority from heaven. He is proving his authority. He's demonstrating that he's the real deal. They should have known by now there's something special about this guy. And the disciples should have turned to Jesus with this one loaf of bread and said, could you do that again? We're kind of hungry. In fact, could you leave one left over so we can repeat that in another couple hours? Second breakfast? The disciples could have turned to each other and said, you know what? Honestly, with how amazing this guy is, I'm okay with not eating for a day. You, you take it. Because I, I'm good. This, this guy's incredible. I just want to spend more time with him. And said, what are they doing? They're arguing about bread. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Little tiny things that distract us. Little things that get our attention off of God and what he's trying to do. Sometimes the smallest of things become massive deals. I'm, 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 uh, I'm not immune from this. I'm saying this to myself. We have these ridiculous expectations. Like I can only be content when my desires are satisfied. I can only be content when I've had enough food and the right food and the right temperature. I can only be content when I've found the right clothing for today. For some of you, that's this morning. Like you're getting ready and the kids are late and the, there's not enough bread and the cereal's stale and you can't find your favorite pair of shoes and you finally get out to the car and you're dragging the kids with you and come on everybody, we're going to church, we're going to worship Jesus. <laughs> and sometimes the tiniest little things derail us from what God is trying to do in our lives because we think, we expect that I can only be content when my desires are satisfied. Here's the point. It's not about the bread. It's about the Savior. It's not about the little things in life that we want, that we need. And if we can keep that in perspective, we can have the right kind of mindset, the mindset that is going to glorify God instead of causing Him to have the same reaction with us that He had with His disciples. Don't you understand yet? Haven't you seen what I've done? Why are you even worried about this tiny little thing? It doesn't make any sense. You're in the presence of Jesus. It's not about the bread. Well, what about you? Do you suffer, struggle with, any of these wrong expectations? I want you to really think in your heart right now. Have any of these been ruling in your life? Maybe it's the first expectation that it's all about you or all on you to figure something out, to solve a problem. Maybe you're facing an impossible situation and the pressure and the stress of that is getting to you and maybe it's not even consciously. Maybe it's in the back of your mind, just the anxiety and the stress. And really, in reality, you have been thinking, oh, I've got to solve this on my own. And the incredible message of Jesus is he never wants you to solve a problem on your own, but he always expects you to be part of the solution. He says in Hebrews 13, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Now, if this is something that you struggle with, it's time to confess that to God, yes. There'll be time to come up after the service and pray with people about it, yes. But we actually have a program called Celebrate Recovery here. It meets on Friday nights at 7 p.m. There's dinner at 6. It's in the chapel. You can come out. And this week, this is so cool. This week, here is the topic for Celebrate Recovery. I consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. That's awesome. Celebrate Recovery is not just for people with, with big addictions. It's for anybody that's got a hurt or a habit or a hang-up so that the believers can do what the Bible says and bear each other's burdens. If you're struggling with expectation number one, I would encourage you to join us this Friday for Celebrate Recovery. Maybe it's expectation number two. You're expecting God to operate on your schedule, on your timeline, when He's really trying to teach you to have patience. 
And that might be something you need to confess to God today as we go into a time of worship and prayer together to just reflect and and say, God, I'm sorry. I have been expecting you to operate on my timeline. I'm going to get on board with your timeline. I'm going to wait patiently as you teach me, even if it's years, even if it's decades. Maybe it's challenge. Maybe your challenge is expectation number three, thinking that you can only be content when your desires are satisfied. And if that's you, let me just tell you, simple equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the point of the third story. You have Jesus in the boat with you and you're squabbling over a loaf of bread. If you have Jesus, if you've been saved by Jesus, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you don't need anything else. And who knows, maybe you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you struggle with these things, but you don't have the kind of relationship with God that will help you to overcome them. The good news for you is he wants to have a relationship with you. And I want to tell you how you can. As we close today, there's going to be an opportunity to come forward. There'll be people here to talk with you. And if you want to know more about what it means to have a relationship with Christ so that you can have Jesus where everything else doesn't even matter, come and talk to us. We would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for us. I'd ask that you bow your heads close your eyes and we're going to pray now and then we're going to go into a time of worship and if you just want to sit and reflect and ask God to reveal areas of expectation in your life that have been wrong that have been mismatched from what the Bible says this is a great time to confess those to him let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you Lord for how you continue to teach and refine us through your word and Lord today we're thinking about expectations some of the wrong expectations that we have, some of the wrong expectations that I have, that I struggle with. These are sins in our lives that we often don't think about or admit or confess to you. And Lord, as we wrestle through some of these things where we have had wrong expectations of you or of ourselves, God, would you teach us to have the right ones? Would you help us now as we pray and as we worship you to focus on those areas that you want to refine in our lives, to allow your Holy Spirit to come in and to to teach us how we should think and how we should live, Lord. Help us to bear each other's burdens as a church, working together to glorify you in everything that we do and have the right expectations of each other and of our relationship with you. We praise you now, Lord. We worship you for who you are. We glorify you. And in your name we pray, amen.